Hello, this is Spotlight on France. I'm Alison Hurd. Sarah Elzas is out this week, but she's left us a report on wolves. France has just agreed to up the quota that can be culled each year. There's a delicate balance to find between letting nature run its course and protecting the livelihoods of farmers who risk losing their livestock. And we go to Normandy, where on Thursday there were big commemorations marking 70 years since D-Day. It's normal to pay homage to the many veterans, both past and present. But what about the many civilians who died and those that suffered and survived? We'll be hearing their voices too. But we kick off, pardon the pun, with a bit of the beautiful game. That was Germany beating France in the quarterfinals of the Women's World Championships in Montreal in 2015. France is hoping to stay in the game a bit longer this year, playing on home turf. In case you need reminding, the 8th Women's World Football Championships begin here on the 7th of June and for the next month, 24 teams will be battling it out in 52 matches in stadiums across the country. The organisers are very excited. Two-thirds of the tickets have already been sold, 10 matches are sold out and 40% of tickets have been bought by foreigners with the US in front. They are defending their title after all. France was a bit slow to get into the women's game, unlike the US, UK and some Nordic countries. France doesn't have a strong sporting culture, as one sports writer and former top handballer pointed out this week. Kids are taught at school about writers, artists and musicians, but not great sportsmen and women. But Brigitte Henriquez, an ex-football pro and now vice president of the French Football Federation, says huge progress has been made. It's a revolution, she says. We've gone from 53,000 to 180,000 registered female players in less than a decade. We've now got 40,000 female managers and we'll soon have 1,000 female referees. We're in the top four now in Europe. All that is very good news. Enriquez admits that the French team, coached by the solid but inspirational Corinne Diac is not a favourite, but maybe playing on home turf might play to France's advantage. It certainly worked for the men's team, Les Bleus, when they won the World Cup here back in 1998. President Macron awarded Les Bleus the Legion of Honour this week in recognition of their World Cup win in Moscow last year. The women's team might have to wait just a few more years to get theirs and overcome a bit of resistance. A leading French intellectual and media pundit Alain Finkelkraut raised a lot of hackles this week when he was asked whether he'd been following the tournament. It's not the way I want to see women, he huffed. You're wrong, the journalist said. Maybe, he said, but then you'll be asking me to watch women's boxing and then women's rugby. Well, I don't want to. The fact is, women's football can probably manage quite well without the likes of Mr Finkelkraut. The unprecedented media coverage this year, the better-than-expected ticket sales means more advertising, more sponsorship, more revenue. Who knows? One day, maybe even equal pay.
commemorations of the D-Day invasion and the long Battle of Normandy that followed have for decades focused on the soldiers. But more recently, there's been emphasis on the civilians who were caught between the occupying Germans in retreat and invading allies and their bombs. Several towns in the region were literally carpet-bombed and as many as 19,000 French civilians died in the summer of 1944. The Normandy town of Caen was badly destroyed. Mike Woods went there and met two women with very different stories of survival, but some shared experiences too. Colette Marin-Catrine is going through her pile of invitations to various D-Day events. As a former member of the French resistance in Normandy, she receives a lot of them. Her whole family had strong anti-Nazi leanings already going into the war, so resistance came naturally to her, even though that looking back today, she sees little glory in what she did. Sitting on a rock and counting ammunition trucks isn't very heroic. And then, when we had to protect others in the resistance, it got more complicated. And after that, it turned into a police state and we became stronger, but also more wary because you had to be suspicious of everybody. And that meant not speaking to anyone, sneaking around. And again, there's not much heroism in that either. One invitation that she does always respond to is for a ceremony to honor civilians. And she doesn't hesitate a moment when it comes to crossing town to visit her friend Arlette Varenne. Arlette is younger than Colette. She was only 10 during the D-Day invasion. She lived with her family in Lisieux and was barely aware that a war was even happening. Our parents protected us. They never spoke about what was happening around us. We were in a cocoon. June the 6th was a beautiful day in Lisieux. We brought our toys down to play in the big backyard and things seemed normal. But unfortunately the problems started at around 8 o'clock in the evening. Her parents knew the invasion was coming and they tried to protect the family. But that day, events took a tragic turn. We usually went to sleep in the countryside, which wasn't far away. But that evening, my grandmother, who lived nearby, was afraid, and she wanted to join us. That kept us back by 20 minutes, just long enough for the bombs to come. Then we found ourselves under the rubble of our house. Ours was the first house to be bombed. The bombing claimed the lives of Arlette's grandmother and her brother, Serge, who was 11 years old. During the same period, Colette also lost her brother, Jean-Pierre, but under different circumstances. He was arrested by the Gestapo and eventually executed. As for the Allied bombs, Colette had already gotten used to living with a sense of danger. Je suis certaine que vous vous adaptez tout doucement à n'importe quelle situation dans laquelle vous êtes confronté. I'm sure you gradually adapt to any situation you're confronted with. Humans have an extraordinary capacity to adapt. As soon as we saw the bombings, we knew it could happen to us at any time. We were very stressed, sometimes afraid, but I'm not sure that that's the right word. Everything was just so turbulent. We were anxious all the time. Ça bougeait tellement, c'était tellement mouvementé. Enfin, on était toujours angoissé. Today, the two women are aware of a growing interest in the civilian side of the conflict. 
For Colette, it's just that the stories of the soldiers always came first up until now. It was always about the glory of liberating armies, or the French army, or the resistance. It was almost automatically about glory, and the tributes were justified. Arlette is getting used to telling her story, and she wants to tell it, even if it stirs painful memories. I'm happy all the same, because now they're honouring my brother's life. My parents never spoke of what happened to us. People wanted to get on with life. There was a lot of joy when we were liberated, even though we felt sad. I never saw my parents cry. They were so dignified. And so now, when I see everyone paying more attention to the civilian victims, it makes me happy. Both women have become used to telling their stories, and they're keeping a busy schedule to do so upon this 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. And that report was from Mike Woods. And now we go back in time. It was on this day, the 7th of June, back in 1936, that Les Accords de Matignon, otherwise known as the Magna Carta of French labour, were signed between the French government and unions representing both bosses and unions. They were, and still are, to a great extent, the cornerstone of social rights in France. People obtained the legal right to strike, freedom to organise unions, and a 7 to 12% wage increase for all workers. The agreements led to laws that gave all employees a two-week paid vacation for the first time in France, a 40-hour work week paid 48, and collective bargaining. The agreements were signed during a huge general strike thanks to the Popular Front, a coalition of leftist groups which came to power in 1936, and the following nomination of the socialist Léon Blum. One member of Bloom's SFIO party coined the now-famous slogan Tout est possible, everything is possible, which would later become a slogan of May 68. Bloom's time in power turned out to be short-lived and the Popular Front dissolved itself in 1938. As for the Matignon Accords themselves, well, the working week is now officially 35 hours, not 40. Reforms to labour law brought in under President Macron have given companies more flexibility to hire and fire. They've also given more powers for companies to negotiate agreements with staff directly within the company, which unions see as an attempt to weaken their representation. Whether you see those changes as good or bad depends largely on your politics and whether you're an employer or an employee. But one thing there seems to be consensus on is the paid vacation, which in France now stands at a statutory minimum of five weeks and usually increases the longer you stay in a company. And then there are the 11 days of public holiday. In sharp contrast, in the US, there is no federal or state statutory minimum paid vacation or paid public holidays. And we remain on that upbeat note. Michael Fitzpatrick, you combed the French press for us and you've sensed a bit of an economic upturn in France, have you not? Well, there was a bit of a surprise on the French business pages, uh, that with the news that France has moved up to second place in the foreign investment stakes. The real surprise, I suppose, is that Brexit-riddled Britain maintains its top spot. 
and this in a context where nobody is doing particularly well. So it's not France that's somehow picking up from fallout from well, Brexit? That's, well, you know, that's not how the French economy minister Bruno Le Maire uh, would have uh, presented things. He was on the radio during the week absolutely delighted with himself saying this is the fruit of the policies put in place over the past two years and he's sort of right. But uh, perhaps a more objective uh, point of view was provided by one Christophe Le Couturier, who is the boss of an organization called Business France, which is, uh, basically tries to sell the French economy as a good place to invest in overseas. Yeah, so and they've still got a vested interest then, um, haven't they, to a certain extent, in, in marketing France? I'm afraid they have. You're really determined to put these unfortunate <laughs> people down and keep us in our place. The, Christophe Le Couturier says that there are two things, in fact, going on. Uh, one is the impact of changes made by the Macron government, uh, notably to employment legislation and to corporate tax regulations that have made the country inherently more attractive to foreign investment. And, uh, and of course, there is the counter uh, effect that Germany and Great Britain have both, for various reasons, been going backwards in their attractiveness. Which countries then are beginning to invest more in France, Michael? Uh, surprisingly, uh, the Germans are leading the charge. Uh, they have been having problems uh, finding workers to do manual labour back in Germany. And so mm. ever pragmatic, the German industrialists have been pouring money into French unemployment black spots. Uh, so it is a fact that German companies currently lead the foreign investment and job creation stakes in northern France and the so-called Great East. That's the former heartland of, uh, of French industry. Yeah, like mining industry and things exactly. like that. Exactly, and it's now being replaced by uh, industry imported from Germany. And uh, so that's a, a bit of a, a surprise reversal of a historical uh, current. Any other countries that are putting their money this way? Uh, well, America remains the, the top investor in France with 227 projects underway, uh, way ahead of the Germans with 187. But one thing that is interesting in these statistics is the fact that the Yellow Vest protest movement does not appear to have had a dramatic impact on the way in which foreign investors assess France as a place in which to put their well-gotten gains. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Michael. Each year, the French government determines how many wolves can be culled here. And this year, the quota is going up from 12 to 20%. Wolves are a protected species in Europe, and they showed up in France 30 years ago, and their population has been increasing. The National Hunting Office counted 500 adult wolves last year, but more wolves has meant more attacks on livestock. Three and a half thousand wolf attacks have been documented on twelve and a half thousand animals. Most of these attacks are in the Alps, but wolves have started appearing farther north and west, including in Aveyron, France's top sheep producing département, home to Roquefort cheese. Sarah Elsus went there to visit a farm that was attacked by wolves a few years ago. The farmers warn that their pastoral agriculture cannot coexist with these wild animals. Jean-Christophe Brunet shows a map of his farm on a tablet computer. He points to a field near the house. There are dots on it where he found several sheep dead, eviscerated, on the morning of May 4, 2016. 
He and his wife Melanie run an organic sheep farm here in the Aveyron department in southern France. Their flock of 150 ewes produces about 180 lambs each year, which they sell for meat. That May morning, they found four dead sheep, others injured. They had no idea what had happened. Later that evening, Jean-Christophe says he went to check on the sheep, and they were in disarray. It was dark, around midnight. I run into the field and trip over a dead lamb. I see a dead ewe and an animal on it. I was wearing a headlamp. The eyes reflected back, I only saw its eyes and silhouettes. He wasn't able to see much. He decided to sleep out in the field with the sheep that night. What was crazy is that they stood up the whole night. Usually they lie down. Once the sun came up, boom, 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 the light was reassuring, and they all lay down. In the morning, he discovered the carcasses of four more dead sheep. In total, eight were killed in the two attacks, ten injured. Officials generally hold off on identifying wolf attacks, especially in areas where wolves hadn't been seen before. It's costly to the state, as farmers get compensation for animals killed by wolves. The Brunets got lucky, though, that a scientist friend of theirs had been tracking vultures at a site less than a kilometer away from their farm using a motion-activated camera. That camera had been running the night of the attack. The photos proved to the authorities that the Brunets sheep had indeed been attacked by wolves. So here it's um, the field where we had the wolf attack. It's uh, 500 meters from the house. The field is surrounded by bushes and a wire fence about a meter high. Mélanie Brunet stands with a sheepdog, looking at about 30 sheep huddled in the shade of a tree. Sheep farming in this region depends on the animals being outside as much as possible. She says the wolf attack traumatized the herd. Sheep scared like that, they can have illness easily because of the stress. In the winter, we realized we have about 20 ewes. They are not in good health, losing weight. We think it's because they were um, fragilized. Wolves were first seen in France in 1992. They came naturally into a national park in the Southern Alps. Since then, the population has grown. The number of attacks on livestock has increased as well. In 2016, wolves killed nearly 10,000 sheep in France, and they hadn't yet spread into Aveyron, which is the department with the most sheep in France. Farmers in Aveyron say that once wolves do get here, the numbers of attacks will skyrocket because their pastoral farming methods have been developed for nearly 100 years without predators. Melanie calls to her sheepdog, tells her to lie down as she approaches the sheep in the field. The wolf attack has turned her into something of an activist. She spent a lot of time researching preventative measures taken by farmers in the Alps, high fences, protective dogs, but she says they don't work. The wolves outsmart them. They learn how to attack even with a protection dog, even with fences that jump. They know the farmer were here at 7 o'clock, so now I can go attack. Now he will come tomorrow. They know everything. Wolves are watching. We go up behind her farm through the 60-hectare area brush where the large part of her flock is left to roam free most of the day. If we want to see them, we have to walk much higher. It's this landscape, the Kos, vast open space that was named a UNESCO heritage site in 2011, specifically because of the relationship between pastoral farming and the environment. Sometimes we said wild for uh, this big Kos. 
but it's not wild. You can have these big spaces like moon sometimes, we said, but it's only because yous are eating this grass. There, there's no more wild nature, especially in France. Wolf is this kind of symbol of wild nature. So people are projecting this uh, desire of wild nature, mm -hmm. what I understand. That's the reason why I was a farmer. I was attracted by this, uh, by nature. The irony isn't lost on her of being an organic farmer who finds herself pitted against pro-wolf environmentalists. The wolf, it turns out, is the ultimate predator, representing a certain idea of nature, the border between nature and civilization, wilderness, and human development. And there is no easy solution. And that report was from Sarah Elsis. That brings an end to this week's edition of Spotlight on France. It was brought to you from the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Pauline Leduc. If you like what you hear, tell us about it. Our email address is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And even better, find Spotlight on France on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. You can subscribe to the show there or on your favourite podcast platform. See you next Friday. Bye-bye. <music>